Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight, we have Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. Hello, hello, hello. And we also welcome back to the show our friend Chris Remo of Idle Thumbs and Camposanto. Hey there. Good to be back. It's been a while, actually, since I've been on Three Moves Ahead. It has, but you know, you, you, your, your life is so rich with cast as it is. It's true. I have plenty of cast in my life. <laughs> <laughs> So this month, we're going to be looking at how World War I has been presented in games, and a part of that discussion is undoubtedly going to be how rarely that war is ever chosen as uh, the subject of a game. Part of that's doubtless due to the static nature of fighting on the Western Front, but I think another part of the issue is the way World War I is remembered, or maybe more accurately, how it isn't remembered. I think part of the issue with the First World War is that um, the, the world that it changed remains a profoundly alien one. Um, Max Hastings in Catastrophe 1914, uh, which is a really interesting history of the first year of the war. Um, in it, he writes, he, he writes about how that entire pre-war period uh, seems almost divorced from any sense of reality that we know it. He, he says, uh, sepia-tinted photographs exercise a fascination for modern generations, enhanced by the serenity which long-played exposures imposed on their subjects. We cherish images of old Europe during the last years before the war. Aristocrats attire in coronets and ball gowns, white tie and tails. Balkan peasants in pantaloons and fezzes. Haughty, doomed royal family groups. So that's kind of why I want to talk about Jordan Mechner's 1997 adventure game, The Last Express. Uh, adventure games aren't something we talk about very often on the show, but we do talk about how games communicate complex ideas and themes, and The Last Express remains, I think, one of the most interesting and perhaps insightful works about the outbreak of World War I and the world that ended in 1914. So to start out, uh, Chris, I, I wanted you to lead off because you wrote one of the most comprehensive looks at this game for Gamasutra some years ago. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the development background behind The Last Express and what makes it different from most of its adventure game peers. Sure. So um, the piece I did for Gamma Sutra was, it was an interview um, with Mark Netter and uh, Mark Moran, who were the uh, producer and lead programmer. And so the piece really was mostly their words. You know, it was just an extensive interview about the game, just to frame that. But um, this game... In a lot of ways, it, uh, to my understanding, having spoken to those guys, you know, for a couple hours and at length, and having um, spoken a bit to Jordan Mechner about it, and just reading what what there is to know, it feels like it came from a mentality a lot closer to how a production company creates a film. That's that's really how it strikes me. Like this, this game was formed by. This game was created by Smoking Car Productions, which was a studio that Mechner and some other folks put together for the sole purpose of making this game. Um, they did a lot of, you know, what you'd consider principal photography, where they went out and actually filmed the all the actors in the game um, to support the rotoscoped process that gives the game, you know, it's very distinctive kind of pseudo animated 2D look. Um, obviously. A huge chunk of the creative content of the game is the script, right? It's the actual story, um, which I guess a lot of that stuff is not drastically different to other adventure games, except that the th big thing that makes this game different to other adventure games is that it plays in real time. This game just mar time marches along in this game as you are wandering up and down this uh 
the Orient Express um, on the eve of World War One, you're encountering the dozens of other characters on this train. Um, and if they're doing something in a part of the train where you are not present at that moment, you just won't see it. Um, and to counteract this, you have the ability to just kind of turn back time arbitrarily in the game, which you, ha you end up having to do a lot because it's very easy to um, miss your cue, so to speak, to, you know, to fail to solve the puzzle in time uh, and then end up being thrown off the train or murdered or, you know, whatever. And you've got to try it again. Um, I don't know of many, if any, other games that have uh, been structured this way before or since. It's a very, very specific um, mentality. There, there are adventure games like uh, Another World that that are kind of like this, in which they're you know it's a very authored story, and you have to hit your, you have to hit cues at very particular moments. But that's one of those games that will still um, there's no clock, you know, you just keep trying until you get it. Um, the last express to keep trying until you get it means actually turning back time to before you tried it the first time, um, according to an actual clock. Uh, it's a really interesting concept that I think probably most people would agree does not 100% work, but is admirable. Um, and there's something about the, that focus on time and these sort of crystallized moments that you have to capture or, or, or let slip by you that I think um, works well thematically to kind of the, one of the things you were saying, Rob, about how this pre-World War I era, this old world era feels just totally divorced from our own. You know, like we have photographs, we have modern records in the sense that we have records of the modern world um it's but that almost makes it feel more foreign because all of the <laughs> all the ways we have these records of photography and kind of audio recordings and so on are so relatively speaking primitive that i feel like they almost are more distancing than eras from which we only have the printed word or or you know things like that because they come in a form that we kind of understand but not really in this game but don't recognize intrinsically and this this game to me deals a lot with just in the way it's presented with that distance you know characters are animated for only a couple frames at a time um, time marches along in this almost alienating way that doesn't map to either how a film works or how most video game works or how a book works it's this it's this very odd um, almost distancing um, sensation um, and then it's all rendered in this art nouveau style that you know, effectively collapsed after World War One, um, and so almost everything about it feels kind of distancing and alienating. Um, but it's also very alive because it's full of all these characters who are speaking in all these different languages and are moving around the train and have their own private lives that you can eaves eavesdrop uh, into, and so on and so forth. And so it's a lot of contradictions, I guess, in one game. Troy, I know that um, it, it had been a while since you revisited this game, and I was a little concerned that, in, in part, some of the um, the game is very old at this point. I was kind of wondering yeah. how you um, how you encountered it after after this many years. Well, it's been probably ten years since I've played it, um, so I went back to it and tried to putter around with it. Went through some walkthroughs, and it doesn't. A lot of it doesn't. The, 
I don't play it every few years like you do, so the interface felt kind of weird and alien to me yeah. um, for some reason, um, even though I played it and loved it before. Um, but so many of the ideas of the game and the structure of it really hold up well, especially thematically. I mean, when, I, when I started to replay it and read walkthroughs and watched some walkthroughs, I was thinking of it with their Guns of August theme in mind. And, I mean, I'm glad you started with the Hastings thing, uh, quote, Rob, because I stuck because I was thinking about something that Christopher Clark was talking about because I'm reading Sleepwalkers another great book from last year about uh, the start of World War One, and he talks about this mythology that after World War One, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was became this grand place this illusion of you know, majesty and where magic could happen. And Vienna was this amazing place. It was almost a fairy tale by 1925, what happened in 1912. Like the war itself is this big breaking point. And I think that's just kind of where first the art works so well, because this was a game that was filmed. These are live actors being filmed and then being rotoscoped and animated and the number of frames cut down. So you do have this really strong artistic break with kind of everything we've seen in video games before or since because it's a unique look and still has a unique look and also the time thing that chris was talking about there's this sense that time is always running out but that if you can just turn back time and get there and, and get there you, you realize something's going on the other side of the train but it happened 30 minutes ago so you reset the clock and you can you can change your future you can find a better, happier future uh, for your character, at least. I mean, you can't stop the war from coming, but you can solve this murder. You can solve this crime. You can prevent your love interest from getting murdered. All of these things can possibly happen if you can just control the clock. So there's this sense that, and here it is, the Orient Express, the great romantic uh, technological traveling uh, mode of the day from Paris to Istanbul, uh, or I guess Constantinople would have been at the time, as the Europeans would have called it, this multicultural mixture of people on the train. There's like the war is going to start by the time the train ends. But you have this mission, and time's always running out, but you could always give yourself more time or try to give yourself more time. So just revisiting the game with the war consciously in mind, and not just as background, because you can easily just play this as background, but if you play it with the war as a theme in front of you, you can see a lot of what Mechner was getting at um, and uh, Nutter and Moran and uh, Tommy, what was her name? Tommy Pierce. Tony Pierce. Uh, all the team uh, from smoking cars uh, that worked on this, that there, they, it wasn't an accidental setting and they didn't choose it because the Orient Express is just some great train. It's all kind of intentional and tightly thematic in a beautiful way. When the game opens, uh, you're you're playing um, you're, you're playing a character named Robert Calf, but the, actually the entire game is founded on a, a case of mistaken identity. Uh, you're you're sort of thrown into things very quickly, and you're uh, sort of as disoriented as the main character uh, when the game begins, because your, your character sort of hops on this train uh, for whatever reason does not you know he's he's trying to duck the cops. So he ends up meeting the train sort of en route, uh, and he's supposed to meet his friend Tyler Whitney uh, aboard the train. 
And uh, the first thing that happens, uh, you know, after you're aboard the train is you, you walk to the compartment um, and on the way the conductor mistakes you for Tyler, uh, tells you where your own compartment is uh, and you open the door and you're greeted uh, by the sight of uh, the, the person you're supposed to meet uh, has been brutally murdered, apparently, and is lying dead on the floor of his compartment. And uh, you're, right away, you're, you're, anything you do in that first room is really sketchy right is that you know everything your <laughs> yeah. character can do <laughs> is something that someone already guilty is going to do from the very right. first like yeah. if you don't it, it all makes sense on the second time you play it because you know the background of this character but really you're just thrown into mm-hmm. it and you have no idea who you are you I have was no really, idea what you're really doing on that train i was really struck by that actually i didn't i didn't have time to replay the whole game um before this episode because i just been so busy this week but I I did you know start playing it for a bit and I I you know I remembered the events of the game but I I was really struck anew by how completely um, uh, willing the game is to just throw you into the deep end there plot wise I mean um, because as you say yeah you you immediately start engaging in incriminating activity and you have to to keep the the to 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 avoid the fail state you know, one of various fail states early in the game. Um, and that's actually, I think, a really interesting, kind of impressive and laudable choice. Um, I feel like that is not what you would do if you were following the kind of screenwriting 101 three-act structure kind of sensation that most game or, you know, mentality that I feel like most games that try to shoehorn a plot into do these days. Um it kind of requires a bit of trust on the player's part to just go for it and say, well, if this is what the character is doing, there must be a reason for it. Um, maybe I, as the player, don't fully understand it. But but I, but th- that is an example of divorcing the player from the character, which is um, – I feel like that actually in the 90s – in 90s adventure game cult, design culture, that was actually much more – a much more acceptable thing to do. Um, I think the modern design – angle is generally to try and ensure that you as the player identify with and inhabit the character as much as you possibly can. But 90s adventure games are very willing, I think, to say, this is a character that we are painting as a character, and you as the player are sort of just enabling that character rather than becoming it. The opening moments, I mean, they violate, I mean, what people know about this era, if they play, if they're familiar with this period, it might be through like British drawing room murders. And you aren't Hercule Poirot in this plot. I mean, you are, he, he would not be the guy, you know, stuffing the body and hiding it someplace oh, yeah, so nobody sure. can find it. Yeah. I mean, this, so this is, it really violates, you know, a lot of expectations a player mm-hmm. might have. So it puts you, it certainly distances you from the character, but it also reminds you of who your character, reminds you you are playing a character and what your interests are. And I think sets you up to, let you know you'll be doing some pretty unsavory weird things here. Yeah, and, and you're trying to solve you're trying to mm-hmm. solve this murder but not in you know Agatha Christie type Not as ways. a gentleman detective, right? I the um yeah, a couple things about that. I mean, one, uh, a couple things I remember um uh the uh Mark and Mark, I guess, <laughs> uh mentioning about this is that so for one thing this is obviously very reminiscent of Kind of film noir tropes. I mean, that gets really literal in the case of something like the Maltese Falcon, and then the the uh, the um, 
kind of MacGuffin of the, of this game. Um, but also they, you know, Troy, to your point about, you know, this isn't Poirot. Um, there was one of the things they said is the reason they chose an American character is because they very deliberately wanted to choose a player character who would instantly clash against the, um, kind of old world social order, uh, of the of the setting um because that's kind of what happened with world war one right i mean this world war one was this like instigating event of dismantling um the kind of old old world european aristocracy's dominance over you know culture uh, that over that culture i mean and um so I, I i you know i think they're killing a few birds with with one stone uh in those opening scenes it it also, I think one of the ways the game sort of gets its power in, in those opening moments is that it, it teaches you very early, very early on. This is, a, this is a game, unlike a lot of other adventure games, where there's a million things you can interact with on each screen. Like, if you play Gabriel Knight, part oh, of the sure. game is to click on every yeah. single freaking <laughs> pixel yeah, and just, yeah. to, just to hear what's written about it, right? Mm-hmm. This is a game where there's only a few things of interest at a time, and you certainly aren't going to collect some massive inventory full of mm-hmm. gadgets that you're going to craft into something later. So, like, the, one of the first, like, I remember the first time playing it, uh, one of the first things you do, naturally, is, like, you click on the body, and you're like, okay, you'll, you'll inspect the body, right? You click on it, and yeah. nope. Your character scoops the body yeah. up, and now you got this tiny. Your mouse cursor is replaced with this tiny little logo of a corpse yeah, a looking around this really yeah. well rendered room. So you're like, I don't know what to do with it, and finally, it's sort of like you mouse over the bed, and uh, you, you you can you can no you you mouse over the. Um, the uh, the the seat in your compartment because uh, they're actually all convertible in beds. You mouse over the seat, you put the body down on it. Um, no, I'm getting it backwards. Actually, so the solution to the puzzle basically is you uh, you you open the bed up and then you put the body in the bed and then your character. The moment you do that, your character just flips the body down, so it's like just sort of shut entombed inside the uh, the converted bed where nobody can see it. And it's just kind of one of those moments where you, you, there's a ch- there's a very good chance you'll end up solving this little first puzzle without really ever being aware it's a puzzle because your character will just. Do it by himself. He'll just yeah, be like, "Well, I got to make this thing you, disappear." Yeah, I mean, you can also throw the body out the window, right? And uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute because, yeah, there are a couple things you can do with that body. You can immediately dispose of it out the window. And I suspect that's the way most people end up getting rid of it on their first playthrough, mm-hmm. uh, or you can sort of save it for later uh, and <laughs> dispose of it later in the evening. Um, and that also teaches you on that very first night. If you sort of dump it out the window, uh, what you see is Tyler's body just goes rolling off on the the railroad embankment, and he's just sort of left there in in the uh, in in the dirt. And if you wait until later in the evening, you dump him off a bridge, and he vanishes into the water, and that has major repercussions. If you just dump him on the uh, side of the railway, uh, then later that night, the police are going to stop the train and begin searching it because they think somebody's been murdered aboard the train. Um, so it's, it, it, even from the first, you're, you're starting to play with that sense of, you know, time flowing and uh, the, there being the sense of causality uh, to the game, which, again, I think ties in very well mm-hmm. with, uh, with, with the subject matter of the game. But v- very quickly after, you, you sort of address this first room and you can explore it and you discover you were meeting your friend Tyler, uh, that he called you in to deal with something that he was sort of over his head. Uh, he was in over his head with something and he needed your help. Uh, but you discover very quickly uh, that 
in addition to being mistaken for Tyler, you are also, I think it's fair to say, you're, you're kind of on a train full of archetypes. And what's interesting that's, is... That's the worst kind of train. <laughs> it, it should be. I think it should be. Like there, it's, it's unbelievable to me that a game loads its cast of characters with so many people who are there basically to represent some sort of idea about the right. time they're yeah, representing entire sure. countries. Yep. It should sort of be sock popping, right? It should be like this terrible historical melodrama. And yet, at least for me, I don't feel it ever quite falls into that trap despite playing with these uh, with, with these sort of national archetypes. And I think you're introduced so, them very quickly just on your way down to the dining room where you're supposed to meet um, like an August, uh, August Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Do you think so? I, I don't actually necessarily know if I have an opinion on this. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Um, how much of the reason do you th- that you think it works is because of the pure execution and, versus the like distance we have historically to the period and maybe our implicit understanding of that period as one in which class distinctions and national identities were perhaps more delineated and uh maybe more archetypal i don't know i mean do you think there's any do you think there there's anything to how we parse that in in saying well if this person is a sort of frustrated uh member of the aristocracy of you know russian aristocracy um perhaps the you know perhaps the currents of the of the era um are such that uh this person grew up with a very codified um, way of life, and perhaps he does end up more like the other person in this situation than, than might be the case today. Or maybe that's – so maybe there's some reality to that, or maybe that's purely just, as I say, like my distance from that period making me swallow that more easily. But maybe, maybe not true in any real substantive way. Does that make any sense? I don't know if I'm explaining yeah, myself. Yeah, you're right. Well. Yeah, I mean, that, that, it's a it's a good question whether this is just a matter of just really well done archetypes speak, or I, mean, I don't think they're sock puppets. They're relatively well drawn characters, or whether they are they're characters who are playing a role in their own lives. This was a very structured society that did have things that were expected of them. Um, each of the characters does fit this the part they're supposed to play, both in the plot. And in the society that's been built right. around them, even the Russian anarchist, the uh, Russian nobleman who turns into an anarchist yeah. because somebody's got to be the anarchist and they can't always <laughs> be the Serbs, uh, though the Serbs are there too. Uh, there are and there there are a lot of things that they don't do. I mean, you don't have a lot of stereotypical Frenchmen that you might think you would find on a train leaving Paris. Um, that's you true. have really you have this that. weird you have this weird. Um, guy who might be a Ethiopian prince and he's more like a stock villain than really anything else I would think doesn't uh, we'll argue about that really later because he's an interesting yeah. character but yeah so but there so there I, I think I, I know where you're going Chris, uh, Chris and I think that it's kind of a bit of both sure if that makes any sense yeah, no, there really is absolutely. something I think there's but they're really well drawn stock characters I mean they're there to serve plot purposes we're not going to get a whole lot of detail on them but you know Anna is a very compelling character as a you know for an adventure game love interest um, there haven't been many better sure I think um, and I, 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 I like the doddering Russian nobleman 
he's kind of cool. Yeah. I, I think part of it is... Um, I think part of it actually goes back to the um, to the art style. I think the art style ends up sort of preserving this a little mm. bit because th this mm. game keeps playing with this, this sort of distancing and then making the past also feel really intimate. You know, yeah, the definitely. the world you inhabit is for mm -hmm. its day was really really well rendered. It was yeah. an astonishingly mm -hmm. beautiful game. I think it remains actually a very good looking. It game. is actually, especially yeah, yeah, if was, you. Yeah, it's standing. Oh, yeah, I was I was just gonna say I I I was playing it on. Um, my phone, which I'd never done before. And honestly, when you scale it down to a screen of that size, it really doesn't lose much. I mean, it, it, the art is actually at a resolution that makes it quite appropriate for that, for that screen size and doesn't, doesn't feel particularly dated except that it's animated with relatively few frames. But that's already true, I feel, for a lot of games you're going to play on that platform. Very much so. Is that an iPhone or is there an uh, iPhone and iPad. Android? Um, okay. I don't yeah. know. That's a good question. I, yeah. I don't know. You should look it up. So, on, on the one hand, though, so you're on this train that they actually remember that in the, there's a making of documentary that shipped with the game, and they talked about how they actually had to go and dig up the 1914 era. I'm sorry, Orient I'm going really quickly for anyone else who's wondering that you can, in fact, buy this on on Android. So I'm going to play I'm the sorry. hell out of it. I'm going to continue. Yeah, ride. go ahead. Uh, so, yeah, so there's this making of um, video that's shipped with the game and is part of the extras in the uh, good old games pack. Uh, and, and they talk about how they dug up an old 1914 era uh, Orient Express train because most of them were destroyed, right? Uh, a lot of the rolling stock from pre-World War One kind of got used up during the war or it certainly wasn't preserved for historical purposes because that's kind of a preservation's kind of just a modern phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but... So they, they've recreated they've recreated this this sort of lost world and this lost train, but then the characters themselves, because of the rotoscoping, it's a game that unfolds in a series of tableaus, right? It captures like one instant mm. after another, sort of strobing into existence, and I think what the, that ends up having this effect where it, it feels like a world where it, it total there it it totally makes sense. And it doesn't feel forced that you're sitting next to a character that is symbolic both of German militarism and its rising industrial class and awareness as an imperial power. It doesn't feel, it doesn't right, because seem you could strained. Almost, you could almost imagine that being what you're seeing. You could almost imagine seeing it in a gallery with a little placard next to it reading almost the words you just said. Exactly. Right. I mean, you and could you could imagine that being portrayed through just a single moment in time, um, and it feels like, as you say, these tableaus. It feels like you're experiencing a series of those over the course of the game, but also, you know, very human moments as well. And and I feel it's that that sort of consistency uh, that that I think allows this game to sort of dance past what 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 really could run the risk i mean we, we we'll talk about the writing in a bit because uh, the writing is actually very very good but the the game sort of like sort of dances past what what could be a really poisonous amount of archetype uh and, and symbolism on this train um and it also puts me a little bit in mind of um years ago uh Umberto Eco wrote something about Casablanca, right? And why that movie is just loaded with these cliches. Uh, the movie should be kind of this, like, almost pop junk. But one, if, if the commitment is so wholehearted mm. that when you sort of jam all these people together and 
you know, all these characters that could and should be clunky on their own, but everyone is so committed to it. And the, the, the work is, is so, um, not even, not even going to glance, not even going to be sort of, not even going to pretend to be self-aware about it, uh, that, you just sort of have no choice but to just sort of roll with it. And I think this this operates, I think it's a little more sophisticated than Casablanca in a lot of ways, uh, but but I think that this has a similar sort of, um, similar, similar sort of commitment. Man, that's a, that's a great uh, touchstone. I haven't, I read that piece years ago and I haven't read it recently, but yeah, I think, I think that's an apt comparison. So we haven't found the Citizen Kane of video games yet, but... <laughs> I mean, it's an easy comparison to make also because wartime is so well, not wartime, I suppose. Right. But like, you know, I mean, there's there's some thematic resonance as well, I think. Between Casablanca and. Uh, yeah. And the last express. Yeah. I mean, you've got the sort of disillusioned American mm-hmm. uh, who who's there surrounded by. Yeah. All these all these sort of symbols of Europe, um, yeah. although it's 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 far less sentimental. Uh, oh, for sure. So. Right away, um, sort of the the first thing you you do in this game then is you go down to the dinner car, and you meet up with um, with with August Schmidt, and we're not going to we're not going to narrate the whole game for you, but I think but I think Schmidt is uh, one of those characters. There's a few characters you meet in that first dinner, uh, in that first evening on the train that are sort of worth looking at, and I think August Schmidt is an interesting one because of all the people on the train who who are symbols of things. I mean, what I said about him just a moment ago still stands. Like he is, you know, German militarism and mm-hmm. industry and uncouth, all rolled into one. And yet the game keeps you... I've played this game many times, and I'm still sort of torn between finding him a laughable figure, a a pitiable one. Uh, but I, I think in the end, he ends up capturing a lot of really interesting contradictions he sums up he sums up a lot of ideas uh in this one character and i was wondering what you guys made of this most archetypal of uh of cast members um i don't i don't know if i have <laughs> i don't know if i have much to say beyond what what you said i mean uh mm, i wish i had played all the way through the game more recently I mean, the the thing with Mr. Schmidt, I mean, is he's, he's he's this arms dealer. He's a businessman and an arms dealer, and the plot is I mean, there's a lot of spoilers here. But hey, it's a f- old game, so deal with it, guys. He's you know he ends up, as I recall, he's selling weapons to Tyler, who then's going to give them to the Serbs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who are not the friend of Germans. So he's kind of this amoral, a national German archetype. He's an industrialist. He's an arms dealer. But he doesn't care who gets the weapons. He isn't German militarism as much as militarism itself and just emb- happened to be embodied in a German, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the classic, arm- like speaking of archetypes, that is kind of the classic arms dealer archetype in in these stories, isn't it? The the kind of um, amoral uh, right. profiteer. Yeah, he's, he's just in it for the money. He doesn't care. It's not about nationalism. It's not about German power. It's about him and his cash. He's, he's your typical amoral businessman who happens to be a German selling weapons. And um, I, he's, I mean, I, I never liked him. He comes off, you know, kind of rough. But Well, I, I think that's actually one of the things that I, I end up liking about that character is that um, Schmidt 
is all these different things at once. Like he's very clearly presented as Nouvelle Riche. Like, and some of the illuminating things that happen on this train is that uh, most of the French people there are not actually main players in the stage. They they more mm-hmm. are they they are more representatives of different classes. Uh, there's a lot of working working class. Like all the railroad workers are French on this train, and they have they have reached their judge they've reached their own judgments about the people they're carrying on this particular trip, and they refer to Schmidt as kind of a gross Nouvelle Riche. They they do not look they do not admire him. They find him kind of detestable. Um, and there's this weird sort of self awareness that Schmidt has that he is a new man that he doesn't really belong in this world of sort of old European refinement, mm. and that is sort of beautifully tied into Germany's place in Europe at this time, where Germany has this suddenly right. like newfound like Germany's a very young country at this point, despite being an old nation, um, and it's it's there's this there's this interesting tension between like Schmidt's Schmidt's status as a, a newly made man, but then also his keen awareness that for some reason he can't quite break in, he can't quite get accepted by these people, and he keeps sort of gamely trying, but there's also this the the, the sense of frustration and uh, and maybe even a little bit of anger uh, with the character uh, that I, I I think ends up both being effective just as just part of that character story but then also doing a really good job of making germany's dilemma in this period feel real yeah and that re- i mean and that reaches that dynamic definitely reaches beyond germany right i mean that's the that's the kind of old world collapse that rippled all across europe is that like you know that frustration that you that you described sort of exploding um uh, in, in a in a way that you know lasted until the modern era right i mean that <laughs> the aristocracy doesn't doesn't laugh at that guy anymore yeah one of one of the other things this 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 game does really effectively is um it it makes it makes extensive use of contemporary current events uh to to sort of set the stage uh and if you go into the um uh, the salon car. Uh, you'll always find a newspaper with the events of the day, and this is taking place in the in the at the very end of July uh, into August. So it's it's the very final days before war is declared. On the first night, you're on the train. I think Austria has just delivered its ultimatum to the uh, to to Serbia. And what's interesting is that the, the this game sort of captures the fact that for a lot of people, life just goes on and i think that's one of the things i like the most about this game is actually most of the characters in this train are never really directly involved with the central mystery they don't really have much to do with it they don't have uh strong opinions uh you know about about the world they're not they're they're kind of bystanders and so you end up watching them and they're just kind of going about their lives they have these really uh, they, they, their concerns are more domestic. They're interested in sort of social trivia. And this is one of the things I, I just, I really adore about this game is I think if if you look at a lot of like historical fiction, especially like bad historical fiction, right? Um, people, like it, it's always got to sort of wave its hand be like, hey, this is, this is about the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, the, uh, the Assassin's and, Creed games are real offenders in that department for me. Yeah, where like, Everyone, like everyone somehow you encounter knows about is the... like yeah. Everyone you encounter is some 
absurdly well-known historic figure and like, oh, they're your pal who, you know, Leonardo's going to make you a bomb or whatever. You know, like every, everything neatly take, fits into this. Take this around to that silversmith who lives in, lives across town, that Paul Revere is exactly, something right. like that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> all, it's all that. It drives me crazy. Yeah, and everyone's everyone has an opinion about whatever right. the big Which historical they will, ear. Well, they will offer to you, <laughs> apropos of nothing. Right. You know. I think King Richard is, yeah. I think Holy Land would be better with King Richard. I think Saladin is better. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. But what I, what I love about, what I, what I kind of love about The Last Express, and it's so true to life, is that the world is kind of visibly ending. Like, there, there's clearly, like, there's the, the risk of war is incredibly high. Oh, yep. There's growing awareness that, Pete, like, that Europe's going to be at war possibly within a matter of days. And yet you've still got people on this train and you've still got the newspaper that's like obsessed with the Madame Cayo trial. Um, you know, you've got people who are still arguing about, you know, just like, you know, socialism versus, you know, capitalism. You have people who are sort of caught up in all these other contemporary political issues um, and, and not really talking about the elephant in the room, uh, which mm-hmm. just I, ends up ringing really true for oh, me, absolutely. but also brings this world to life for me. For sure. Rob, you wrote a really wonderful piece on uh, on the the two uh, two female characters in this game a few years ago. I recall. Um, yeah, it was that, at Gamers with Jobs. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, that was that was really wonderful. I thought you basically just did a kind of deep dive into this just side side story that's present, um, but not critical to the main plot. Um, that is exactly the kind of thing that's wonderful about a game like this that is uh, facilitated by the basic structure they've undertaken, which is, yes, this is a world in which things just happen. And and sometimes you bear witness to them and sometimes you don't. And you don't need to have seen all of these things to have sort of completed the game. Um, but they're still going on. Uh, and that's that uh, that fits right into what you're talking about on the fictional level with... Um, not every character on this train being obsessed with sort of the the most momentous um, potential to you know bit of of world news going on at the moment, um, and it does make me wish that this sort of thing were more common in games. It's hard to do because games, I think, by their nature, want to be player centric. They want the world to reflect the thing that the player cares about because the player is the person who's giving this world a reason to exist at this particular moment. But it's not necessarily actually evocative of how life works in any real way. And um, I, I'm always really glad. I always games that that give you glimpses of, of other people's interior lives without regard for how they may relate to the players I always treasure. And the, the real-time structure really helps here, mm-hmm, where you don't know what people are talking about when they're out of your earshot, but you do know they're talking about something because things happen whether you're there or not. I mean, uh, my ex-wife and I, we play a lot of role-playing games together, and there's always in a lot of RPGs, there's this pressure. You've got to rush and kill the villain. It's, he's coming right around the corner. But you know what? This is Baldur's Gate. It's Chapter 2. I'm going to do every single side quest because I know in chapter three, he's still going to be waiting for me. Yep. Because everything centers on the hero character. It's all about the plot of the hero. And here there's, there's a hero and the hero is supposed to do things and has to solve a mystery. 
but the real time pressure is there. And so it makes the fact that, of course, they'll have other lives and they're not going to be talking about the war all the time because they're doing other things when I'm not there. Maybe they're talking about the war when I'm not there. Maybe the Rosas American won't understand what alliance systems are. And he's talking about, he's talking, they'll talk about it when I'm not in the room. I don't know that. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But it's certainly plausible that when you're around, they're talking about different things and there's different interests. It's kind of like it is very true to life. I mean, there's, I, I, I look at my Twitter feed and I can see Palestine and I can see Twitch and I can see Kim Kardashian and I can see all this other stuff. And this is all kind of the way the world yeah, is. It's all part of People the fabric always, of life. Yeah. And this kind of, if, I mean, archetypes are not that it's very true to, because as you said, Chris, it fits the mechanics and the structure of the game so well to have this real world that is impinging and it's on them, but it's not impinging in the way that so many other plots in games make the hero's journey the only thing anybody yeah, cares about. The only journey that exists in that world, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, and that's something that's actually really important about this game is that a lot of people in this train are at a crossroads. It's this, it's this, it's it's the series of crises unfolding between these characters. And some of them are important, and some of them really aren't. And I think one of the really brilliant decisions with this game is its commitment to using native languages. Not everyone is. Oh, not everyone that. on this train is an English yeah. speaker. The game is yeah. actually mostly subtitled, mm-hmm. and your character has this unique perspective as a voyeur because Robert Calf. Um, there, there's sort of hints, like somehow he can he can understand spoken Russian, but he can't read it, and he just sort of says that his mother taught him Russian, but we never get more detail on that. Yeah. Um, he is fluent in French, but he never betrays that fact to anybody. Uh, and one of the first things that happens again, uh, if one of the other things that happens on the first night is you can sit down in the salon car before dinner and uh, these these two characters that you, you mentioned earlier, Chris, that I wrote the piece about, uh, Sophie and Rebecca, mm-hmm. uh, are there in the salon car having tea. And uh, Sophie seems like you're she she of anyone seems like sort of the classic uh you know flighty french seductress type character she's sort of whispering to rebecca like how handsome she thinks the american in the corner is um and you know how, how you know how she'd like to maybe get with him and then rebecca leaves the room for a moment she's left something in her compartment and your character can walk up to her and sort of make a pass sort of offer her a smoke and the moment uh, you do, she shuts it down completely. She says in French, "Sorry, you know, I, sorry, sir, I, I don't speak English." And your character does nothing; just pretends he doesn't understand. And it sort of explains why Robert Kath can stand like right next to people having these conversations, and they have no <laughs> yeah. idea that he can understand every word. So you end up being this. What there's the entire game is this wonderful sense of constantly being the fly on the wall, yeah. uh, getting things that you never get, things you never get to hear uh somehow he gets to hear and i i think that ends up uh being really really powerful for making these people making these people come alive and and sort of digging into who they really are this there's a lot there's a god there's so many things i i love about about what you've just said and and some other basic choices they made about this game including um the setting not just the the time period but also physically being set in such a confined location um, you're constantly, I mean, just physically, if, if you are on a train 
for a journey of several days and you're there with a couple dozen other people and you're constantly all dining in the same room, you're walking back and forth in the same halls, um, it starts to take on a familiar air. Um, you, you, it does – the whole thing almost does feel like all of these people's lives are being intermingled in a very tangible way even though, you know, as you say, many of their stories do not um, – don't intertwine in any significant, any real way. Um, by cho- by the developers choosing the setting they did, I feel like they they created such a perfect um, – uh, what's the, like um, petri dish? I guess for 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 uh, for all of these um, relationships to sort of be on display. Um, that's that's a thing I really love. And uh, also to Rob to go all the way back to you, to something you were saying earlier about um, the fact that you when you click on something, you basically just do the thing Robert Kath would do in that situation. You don't get the sort of inspect this, inspect that, click on all the things, look at all the things, inspect this. Part of the reason I think they get away with that is because they did choose to set the game in such a grounded location. I mean, certainly the the it's it's an auspicious uh, time, but but fundamentally we understand what it means to be on a train and to be in a train car and to be in a dining room. We know what all these objects are. You don't need the sort of tedious that's a steamer trunk. You know, I mean, you don't you don't need this like <laughs> thing. Ga- ga- games are like obsessed with this notion of you look at something with your own eyes, and then the character has to remark that the character sees it with his own eyes and needs to reflect that back to himself. And then you, as the player, it's this weirdly redundant feedback loop that, uh, especially adventure games, um, but a lot of other games as well, um, really dive into. And the you being Robert Kath being an observer, as you say, who's able to um, parse all these languages, I think maps really well to the player being an observer in a true sense. If you as the player see um, like a dark wood paneled uh, train car, that's what you're seeing. You don't, you don't, you, you ha- you're equipped with a brain and eyes and the tools to understand the situation. And so all of your inputs into the game are direct action. You're either not doing anything and you're receiving or you're doing something, but there isn't that weird in-between state. Well, and just to the point about, like, uh, the game sort of teaching you early on that you can do what Robert Kath does, um, the game also teaches you, like, the context matters in this game. Like, you can't oh, just interact yeah. with shit uh, mm-hmm. just because you're in an adventure game. Like, I, I would, like, it would be interesting to have this game come out in the era of, like, getting statistical breakdowns of who does what, because I always wondered how many people in the very first car, because oh, every that car so has the emergency stop. Yeah, yeah the, the classic thing from every train movie, yeah, right? You, yep. you yank the emergency st- brake and, and everything yeah. comes to a halt and you can scream like, oh, there's a body. If you do that in this game, you are arrested within <laughs> seconds. Like you pull that you pull that handle and someone comes up to you. It's like, what the hell do you pull that handle for? And you get arrested and thrown in jail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um and so you learn the game teaches you like right from the first like dude you're you're on a train like use your head you can't yeah. just go anywhere you can't but, just do anything but also because of the um because of the time uh rewind mechanic it's not like a sierra adventure game where you where it it actually feels like you're just going to ruin everything constantly you know i mean you do have some leeway to try things because you know that you don't have to reload a save, so to speak. It's the game itself actually contains a mechanic that allows you to try again. 
which is nice because without that, I think it would be an intense, it, it already can be a frustrating experience at times, but I think it would be an intensely frustrating experience without that. Well, you got caught with blood in your jacket. How about we jump back in time 30 minutes and try that again? Well, yeah, and that can be that can be extreme. That is a fascinating thing about this game, right? Is how you can totally fuck yourself like an hour in the past. We, <laughs> I mean, we might as well get into this because the second day, I have to, I've, I've given this game to so many people, been like, you gotta play this game, and everything goes well, and then the second day things just go completely off the rails because the second day is probably in terms of in terms of a puzzle of timing it is the most ambitious this game gets. Like, there are so many things that happen over the course of the second afternoon, uh, the, 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 afterno- the, the first afternoon. You start, you start in the evening. The next day, um, you have to do a whole bunch of things. August Schmidt expects you to give him money for the guns. If he does not get the money for the guns by Vienna, he's taking the guns and walking. If he takes the guns and walks, then the Serbs who are on the train who are expecting Tyler to give them guns, um, actually, they know, you, they know you're not Tyler. But they, nevertheless, they're looking at you. You're going to get us the guns. Uh, and if you don't, they're going to be pissed at you and they're probably going to kill you. Uh, so you need to somehow get them the guns. You need to get August Schmidt his gold. And all you have is the sense that that your buddy had something valuable, but you don't know where the hell it is or what it is. Um, and so the second day, you've kind of got to do all the major puzzles happen over the course of this one afternoon. You've got to get the MacGuffin, whatever the hell it is. You've got to get money for the uh, for the guns. But then you also can't give up the MacGuffin. There's a false ending to the game where you can, if you just sort of, like, if you actually give Schmidt the gold, uh, you're, you're kind of screwed. So somehow you have, to, you have to play this fast one on two or three different characters, and you have a period of about three or four real-time hours to do all of this. And it is very possible to play through this section of the game, get to the end, and without having known it, you actually failed. You actually failed about <laughs> two and a half hours ago. And you've been yeah. a walking dead man ever yeah, since. It's brutal. And it's it gets it's a really difficult thing. I never I was never I had to refer to a walkthrough because there's a few things on the second day. Suddenly you have to break some rules uh, that are established on the first day. You have to become the guy who's running along the top of the train, doing action hero stuff. But it is this really. It, the 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 time mechanic is is fascinating. The idea that time is always flowing is, is really interesting. But man, does that second day just really start hitting you hard uh, yeah, with that? For sure, there's it's it's brutal. I suspect that. I mean, I can't. I can't imagine that they did rigorous playtesting the way that almost any game just takes us. Would any game developer would take for granted at this point? Um, like even even a even a linear adventure game these days, I think the expectation is you do fairly robust playtesting to ensure that you don't want to sand off all the edges. But you, that kind of thing, I suspect, would have a hard time making it through any kind of um, anything on a larger scale than like one or two people just making a game, just themselves, right? Like that that. I have mixed feelings about all this stuff because I think modern um, – some parts of modern design culture uh, I think do too frequently sand off the rough edges that make things interesting and sort of too often capitulate to overriding notions about what makes good design, right? Or sort of what is what is um, 
guaranteed to be parsed by the highest percentage of the audience at every turn. I mean, I, I think there are parts of modern design philosophy that really overplay that stuff and, and, and sometimes can make games less interesting. But also, past a point, I don't know how much value there is in making someone replay two and a half hours because they didn't miraculously have the foresight to, <laughs> you know, perform steps A, B, and C in the correct order. Um the previous session that they were playing this game. So, you know, I, I, I'm very ambivalent about that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people who, who've never quite been able to f forgive the game that on the other hand, like, um, Dave Gilbert at Wajidai, is that, is that his name? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um, I, I was talking to him at GDC and, you know, talking about the difficulty of making games accessible and the problems adventure games have had with puzzles over the years. And yeah. he, you know, he was, he was frank. He just, he was like, look, adventure gamers always played with walkthroughs. Like the, sh the number of people who actually like puzzled <laughs> all this shit out. Oh, it, was, yeah, it, was always, sure. it was always crap. Like the, these games, these games threw roadblocks up and you, well, or, or you were young enough as I was when I came, when I came up on adventure games, to not have the internet. Well, that was not even just me being young. That was also just less internet was around. Um, but uh, I I never had walkthroughs as a kid, which just meant those games would take me weeks or months. Or you wait. I'd places. have to wait till the PC gamer walkthrough appeared like months later, and then I'd be like, now. Oh I can sure, play that that, game. that was sometimes an option. Yeah, um, yeah. But often for me, it was just yeah, just, just beating away but, at it. Yeah, it was it was just a slog, you know. Yeah. And this is definitely a game that's not really meant to be a slog, but it's unfortunate that second no, day is so it, difficult. It's difficult. You wouldn't even be able to play it that way, really. Um, the the clock makes that not a not a particularly um, viable option. Um, so you know, on on the second day, uh, a lot of things get sort of put in play, and and you meet uh, the character Troy mentioned earlier. Uh, Kronos uh, is is the guy's name. He's in this uh, really mm -hmm. lavish. Um, private car at the back of the train, and he is conducting himself like uh, some kind of uh, Oriental prince. And I and I use the word Oriental there in, in very much like the sort of Victorian sense. Like he is he is foreign, sure, yeah. and it's not really like it's sort of hand waved away. He's from elsewhere, and his ways are different, and he's got a lot of money, and you're, none of it is really ever explained in this game. But he wants something that. Um, that Tyler Whitney had uh, that he was bound and determined to collect. And what he was looking for, you discover, was this this giant golden egg uh, that has some mm -hmm. uh, that, that has its origins in uh, the the Ottoman Empire and a doomed sultan and his wife uh, in that you know somewhere in the past. But the Kronos character is an interesting one because I think he has the greatest potential maybe to be a problematic character uh, because he's it, it plays on so many sort of you know strange oriental foreigner tropes um, and, and Troy I'm, I'm curious you sort of you, you sort of described him, I think as a Bond villain uh, I've always sort of liked the liked the guy though what what um what do you what do you end up making with Kronos I don't know. I think Bond villain kind of fits. He's kind of he has these mysterious goals that are never made really quite clear. He pops up, you know, partway halfway. Th the second day is it? He pops up and it's he's introduced with these mysterious. He's oily. He's he knows uh, what Kath's up to, so he seems to have this 
either a really good intelligence or he's just a really good reader of people. Um, he's a lover of music. So all of these all these sophisticated, oily tropes at the same time as being, like you say, this orientalist image of what a foreign potentate would be, you know, sneaky and manipulative, and he has this unnatural attachment to an object for some, it's just sure. as, as that the object still makes no sense to me. I still don't know if this is supposed to be a thing. Uh, I'm not, I'm not to put the MacGuffin names. I'm going to explain it. You wouldn't believe it. He just stands out as, you know, he's the antagonist. He's the villain. He's gets, he has the big fight at the end. His name is freaking um, Kronos. His name is Kronos. Yeah, know. You know, he's, well, he's the, the, the god of time. He calls himself a prince, an exiled prince. So it's like, okay, from Ethiopia. So... Okay, I guess, and he even has the androgynous, uh, the androgynous servant, uh, Kahina, yeah. uh, a, a woman, but the, mm. very like very boyish, cut to the clothes, deadly yes. with a knife. Uh, that that sort of character. I, I mean, everything just seems to fit in this. The the game is so true to life for so much of it. I mean, things that could happen in a really weird adventure story at the time, and then this guy pops up, and he just sets off all of the uh, movie character type things that just kind of threw me off a bit, I guess, as it became more mm-hmm. and more ludicrous. Now, like, it's been 10 years since I played it, so maybe I maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I'll maybe have a play to the end and actually see a little bit more and don't just read a walkthrough and watch a walkthrough. Um, it would, I would experience it differently um, than I did then and now. Uh, but it's just, I don't know, it just felt weird and kind of out of place. I mean, he's a great character, but I'm not sure he's a great character for this game if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you there. I mean, that's, I suppose the, dis, the difference is that a lot of these, um, you know, Rob, you opened early by, earlier by talking about the archetypal nature of a lot of these characters, but I think most of these characters feel like archetypes of what we understand as sort of important cultural um uh, forces or classes of the era, whereas, you know, Troy, to your point, Kronos kind of feels like an archetype of fiction. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that feels a little bit out of place uh, relative to how the other, like, what archetypal traits the other characters are drawing from. And yet there there are things I, I really enjoy about the character. There, there's... He's sort of a useful presence in that he's kind of the all-knowing figure that has to provide some context for what you're doing. Like, he's the first character to sort of enunciate, like, who Robert Kath is. Like, he knows exactly who you are. Yep. He knows you're you're kind of full of crap. Um, and he knows why you're on the run, run from the law. And he doesn't care. He's completely amoral. He just, he just wants, he just wants his MacGuffin. He just wants the Firebird. Um, and he'll do whatever it takes to get it. Um, there, there's other little touches I, I love. Like, the the rest of the train is in the sort of lavish um, Art Nouveau-influenced... Uh, yeah, Art, New- Art Nouveau style, uh, which still has, I think, maybe some remnants of, like, the Edwardian era. But if you go to Kronos's uh, private car, it's actually all really modern. Uh, it's it's dis- disconcertingly modern. Like it's it, he he's right on the border there of like Art, art Deco. He, he's clearly like already existing. He, 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 the character almost seems to exist from the future, um, which yeah. w- which I kind of enjoy. He, he's this he, he's this person who exists almost outside the game, 
and that that is problematic in, in some respects. On on the other hand, just from from a narrative standpoint, um, it, it's useful to have him there. And I find it interesting that in the morning when you talk to him, he disappears in the room for a few minutes, and you can sort of browse around. You only have a few seconds to sort of glance around the room to s- see what he's up to. And uh, what he's reading is this book uh, called The Sick Man of Europe, and he's reading about um, he, he's reading a an account by one of the Sultan's doctors, uh, describing the, the final days of this, of this doomed Ottoman Sultan. Uh, and in it, he's also sort of, it's also sort of the background on the MacGuffin, uh, that it is the gift the Sultan made for his, uh, beautiful young bride. And when she received it, she sort of recoiled in horror and him being sort of your dramatic Sultanish type, uh, did the thing you imagine an Oriental despot would do. And I think decapitated his favorite concubine, the scimitar, um, and then later he discovered that this this object that had been made for him, rather than having a little cameo of her uh, built into it, um, when the when it was nighttime, and you open the cameo, it showed her, but with her throat cut open, just as he killed her. So it's this sort of like cursed object, um, which yeah doesn't quite fit in with the the rest of the sort of grounded uh, the sense of the game, but th- there is something. That that object in the end is kind of used as well. The end of the game sort of explicitly makes it this this idea of of conflict being set loose, of of being the firebird set loose yeah, in the world sure. to destroy it. Yep. I was going to ask what you thought about that, and with respect to things sort of breaking tone, I remember the first the first time I played this game. You know how I don't know how many years long, many years ago, um, I was really taken aback by the ending it felt so out of nowhere to me right it felt um completely in breaking with the, the entire, entire tone of the game yeah I, well sure sure um but i mean even 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 more specifically i suppose and i don't know if i don't feel quite this way anymore but at the time you know when I mean, are we talking about the ending in in yeah? Overt I, look, terms I am or, I, I am firmly in the camp of this game has riches way beyond sure. knowing what the plot is. In fact, like having some expectation yeah, yeah, of what's going to happen point. here can actually be beneficial because otherwise, you there's a lot of what the hell moments in that yeah, you're, third you're, act. You're you're going to need to yeah. walk through anyway, guys. So yeah. be ready for spoilers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess if they've made it this far in the podcast, they know whether they're going to play it or not at this point. But um, uh. You know this this egg, this MacGuffin, the sort of Fabergé-like egg that that is um, uh, a constant sort of presence here. Like it, it you open it as a result of solving kind of a fairly video gamey um, puzzle where you you know determine what the what the process is, and then it it turns into this like extra, extraordinary um, like mechanical firebird that then. Uh, basically uh, murders Kronos and his assistant. Um, and it's so, as I recall, um, it's been, as I say, it's been a while since I played all the way through the game. But as I recall, this this just, it's not restrained in the slightest. I mean, this, it sort of just explodes into movement and it's like animated and it's uh, violent and, and just, com- I was totally shocked um, the first time that happened. 
And uh, I did not know what to make of it. I still don't entirely know what to make of it. It definitely cements the notion of this being a game about ideas. Um, you know, it feels like they very deliberately um, pushed outside of the grounded tone that the game establishes early on um, to reach just, I guess, a moment of sort of catharsis and just extreme metaphor or something. Yeah. I don't... I don't know. Yeah, I think I think I mean the metaphor is kind of it's kind of slaps from the face. I mean, the Firebird is a Fabergé thing. It's got it's got a map on it, as I recall, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to activate the map. Yeah. Then you yeah. got to signal them. Got to blow a whistle or something, or make a noise. Beetle whistle. And it hatches, and the Firebird comes out and just destroys what's around it. So you you yeah, and then it just flies a off <laughs> over crazy. Constantinople. A giant metal yeah, bird uh-huh. fucking flies in this so, game. So you give a signal, yeah. the world explodes and brings death. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of heavy handed. Well, you know, the train full of archetypes mm-hmm. can really only have one destination. Well, this is... <laughs> yeah, but but it's different, right? Like I don't know. I this is because so, archetypes can happen inadvertently, right? Like you can end up writing an archetype unintentionally. I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm just saying conceivably in fiction, you could write an archetype not because you're intending to make a game about archetypes, but because you're making a game set in a given era or something. And this is what you end up with because it, it maps to your understanding of the world or, or two of these people. But you you cannot <laughs> make the choice that occurs at the end of this game without very deliberately and extremely consciously deciding it's time something fantastical it's is going time to happen. For a metaphor, like this is you know a really big mechanical yeah, like metaphor. We, right. And and I find that really fascinating. I don't know what we're intended to make of it entirely as the as the audience. Um I it 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 just it's sort of a moment of magical realism yeah. or something. Like it's it um but there's there are there really to me there are not I don't perceive seeds planted that foreshadow anything that extreme in this game, even though, even though Rob, as you say, like you do end up on the top of the train, like in a, you know, do, doing these kind of action still, hero yeah, things. That's still grounded. It's, um, it's what you, if you were sort of thinking on train, you'd end up doing it. It's still like that hap- that could happen in this world. Right. But you're never sort sure. of told that this world is a world where primitive where animatronics will come. Magic exists. Yeah. Right. Like, like, I mean, I, you know, obviously one could argue, uh, you know, about different distinction between science fiction and fantasy and this and that. But like effectively something supernatural is happening at the end of this game. There are little hints like there's little there's little things throughout it. And the the game starts introducing this really early on. Like when you first get a look at Tyler's corpse, he's been killed. And he has these like three like long claw marks down his face, and you mm-hmm, you go about right. investigating it like it's normal murder, and who is the last person to see him and everything. But even at the time, I remember thinking that seems kind of a weird way to like stab someone to death, like just like gouge their face <laughs> yeah, repeatedly. Right. Uh, yeah. like, like I don't know, did did like a you know pimp from an exploitation film show up and just like cut Tyler? Like it makes zero sense. But it then you seconds later you encounter this little, encounter this little kid running around uh with this with this beetle whistle um and he's this odd little kid and he's he's talking to his mother you overhear him he's like my my scarab whistle died and she's like what just she she doesn't pay attention she's like what are you talking about it's just it's just a whistle he's like no it was moving around but then it died and it won't move anymore 
and it's like like it, it's kind of this weird incongruous thing and, and later you can get the whistle from him um and it, it clearly fits in this box that, that that tyler had uh but there are these little hints that like something really odd happened that first night uh and when you do get the egg uh you you can you can unlock it and blow the whistle and it plays a little song it just seems like this really this really lavish um you know animatronic but there are little hints that there, there there's something at, at play here uh and and i do i i, I do find it, it it kind of works just as this thing where it, it's got to kind of blow up this world um it, you know that all these characters it, like something's got to happen to to sort of upset uh whatever resolution they come to on this train it's all kind of got to blown to hell in, in some way or another and I, and I kind of like that this it, it's something it, it's something I guess I, I, I've sort of learned to roll with in, in the years I've been playing this game um, and you're right Chris and, and to Rob I still I, I still don't know I guess what I make of it because in my head I think I end up dividing yeah. it I divide the last express this game I really love the, the the stuff I really adore I think is all sort of before the third act when you're kind of running around this train and listening yeah, to people. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. And then the you, third yeah. act is kind of this really odd action movie that that sort mm-hmm. of breaks out. Mm-hmm. Um And you know, it's a shame it's actually a shame because I I feel at this point so when I first played this game I was in my I don't know mid-teens I guess and I was almost kind of offended by the choice that choice at the end because to me it was like i had set up this rigid notion of kind of how the story is being told in my brain and then it felt like just a total break from it and i you know as a i guess self-serious teenager i was kind of irritated by that um now i i kind of find the choice more interesting even though i don't i still don't really know what to make of it simply i find it interesting just because they made it and all of the sort of third act stuff you're talking about I find kind of more irritating because it, it breaks from that tone, but not really in an interesting way, just kind of in a way, you know, I, whereas the, that final moment is so, um, just otherworldly that I'm kind of willing to accept it as, as just an, as an interesting flourish and as, as, as something of ambiguous, Meaning, I mean, the, the again, the, the symbolic meaning is quite clear, but uh, but uh, but uh, of ambiguous literal meaning, I'm I I find interesting, um, but yeah, the the sort of just as it as it becomes more of just sort of an action thing, that that is a lot less interesting to me. Like that's kind of an obvious direction for it. To yeah, go. and the entire game, you've sort of been playing this murder on the Orient Express kind of thing, and then. Um, have you ever seen uh, Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes? Um, it's, it actually follows a very similar sort of thing. I mm-hmm. wouldn't be surprised if Mechter used it as kind of a reference uh, for a lot of the stuff he does. Because that is also a, a story where it starts out as a mystery. And then suddenly there's trains chasing each other across Europe. There's, there's all this sort of action and adventure happening. Uh, which kind of blows apart uh, the, the sort of murder in a locked room uh, drama that you had playing out earlier. Um, but if we're going to be talking about the end of the game and, the, and that third act, we, we, we should talk about um, a couple of these major characters that, uh, that end up being hugely important. Um, you, you know, obviously there's sort of the Russian anarchist and the noble and the, uh, the noble's young granddaughter who's still sort of a good czarist uh, aristocrat. Um, and the sort of Dostoevsky-looking guy uh, who's, who's the Russian anarchist naturally does what anarchists do and attempts to blow up the train. Um, and yep. 
you've also been introduced to these other two characters uh, th- throughout the game. One is this really clownish English guy, like the most like bluff, hail, hail and well met kind of dude. He <laughs> is the most like cartoon Englishman like outside of a Monty Python sketch. And he's just sort of blundering through this game, like having awkward conversations with people, being, you know, way too familiar and kind of oblivious. Um, and then the, the, the perhaps most important character uh, that we haven't mentioned yet is uh, Anna Wolf, uh, who is this... Mm-hmm. She is a subject of the Austrian Empire. She is hung- She is a Hungarian Jew. And... I guess, you know, as a symbol of the elegance of old Vienna, she is also a classically trained uh, violinist uh, on tour. And then it turns out you discover she's also a spy. She's also part of the Austrian Secret Service, and she's there to blow apart August Schmidt's arm deal, arms deal. And in the, in, the, in the final act of this game, these characters all start making big moves. The anarchist tries to blow things up. Um, and the moment he does, you discover the English guy is... English Secret Service. He also knows you. Who's you? Are, knows who you are. And Anna and Robert Kaff end up sort of having this affair uh, on the final on the final um, day. And it's just it's. I've again. I've I've always found this this sort of this sort of cast of characters to be, to to be kind of interesting because it's it, it's funny. Like you take one look at the Russian anarchist guy and you see the first day he's like reading Nietzsche. He's he's reading um, uh, right. spoke Zarathustra. Um, and you look at him and you're like, that guy's going to blow up this train. <laughs> of course he does. But the moment works because the thing is, at the end, he doesn't really, he wants to blow up the train, but he's kind of having second thoughts about it at the last minute. And all he actually wants to do is get together with his childhood sweetheart and leave all this behind. And what gets him killed is he comes in to confront the old, um, the, the old czarist uh, priest that's on the train. And he's trying to tell him something, and the guy freaks out, has this hallucination, kills the young anarchist before he can make his declaration, uh, and then you have just a few minutes to discover the bomb. But when when things begin to move in this game, they begin happening fast, and a lot of these characters start destroying what you think you knew about them. Yeah, it's a lot of reveals and sudden reversals, uh, which is... You know, typical of a lot of these games, I guess. Especially if you're going to have if you're going to have spies in Secret Service, might as well make everybody a spy in Secret Service. I'm sure Kronos probably has intelligence connections because he knows who Kath is, and you know uh, the British bumbly guy. He knows who Kath is. Everybody knows who Kath is, except so Kath's disguise isn't necessarily that great for a lot of the characters. And a really good job there. My um, fake at all, except for I guess August Schmidt and the Serbs. Uh, that's the Alexei uh, Obolensky subplot is, it's really kind of, it's, it, it is so Russian. <laughs> it is the most Russian of <laughs> Russian things. I mean, he's, he's reading a German philosopher, but he's, it's all about, you know, the fatalism and the old guard and the new guard, but he just wants to love Mother Russia. Come on, Tsar, let me love Mother Russia. Uh, and it's... I, I, I kind of like Alexei. I mean, he's this loudmouth young guy who hates the old guard and wonders why Tatiana doesn't, you know, turn her back on the old ways. And he dies the stupidest death because he waits, he delays, he doesn't revolt soon enough. But he wants to blow the whole thing up, and he doesn't care who dies, because all that's important is him. He's 
very self-absorbed, which kind of fits a lot of the characters. They really are. I mean, Chris made the point that everybody, yeah. you know, you interact with everyone when you're on a train for a few days. And that, I guess, if you try the Orient Express, you might. From the Via Rail, from Montreal to Moncton, you don't talk to anybody because they're all Eastern Canadians and they're crazy. Oh, I didn't actually, yeah. just to clarify, I didn't actually necessarily mean you interact yeah. with everyone if you're on a train. What I mean is you become yeah, familiar, right. not necessarily familiar in sure. a friendly sense, but familiar in the sense of I've seen all these right. faces before. I would imagine one would let their guard yeah. down sure. in that scenario, right. right? If you're surrounded by the same faces for days, yeah, they I'm, all become I'm, less foreign, at I'm least in theory. I'm sure three days in an elegant sleeping car would change things. Uh, but it's so... But everyone's kind of absorbed in their own little world, except for the ones who are interacting with kind of the main plot. You know, uh, it's the Russian stuff mm-hmm. kind of sets itself apart. It interacts with the main plot, but it's not really part of it. It's not like, you know, Schmidt, who is kind of the the spark that gets things going, or the other yeah. spies, or Kronos. The Russian thing is kind of a sideshow. It threatens to derail the entire plot, literally and figuratively. Um, and it really is a nice little tragic subplot that just gets in the way and you, know, you have to deal with. But it really isn't connected to the arms deal. It isn't connected to the Serbs. It isn't connected to Kronos. It's a part, and yet because you're on this this train, this is a game that is literally on rails, uh, despite all the different ways you can get to the end, you're still on a train going to Constantinople, so you have to deal with the fact that these people are there and they're in, they're in the way. Though it is set apart, uh, which is, I mean, I could make some really long um, analogy between, you know, Russia's tragic domestic crisis and how that ends up pushing Russia apart and how it is, in many ways, apart from all of its allies. It's not a democratic state. It's an oppressive state. It's got revolts that its own allies don't have, that it's it, it's walking wounded, like Alexei is walking wounded, with you know this love and this philosophy that are in collision. Uh, so I kind of like the way the Russian thing is a part of and yet separate from the main plot. Yeah, and I think this is, this is one of those things where... This is a game that does such a good job without sort of explaining to you history, contextualizing it, or or making history history's dilemmas yeah. feel that word relatable, or at least helping illuminate them in in a way you that's that's really rare, I think. And yeah, you're right. Just narratively, uh, it's kind of brilliant. This this Russian subplot is not part of the main story but it is actually a crucial part of the story that it, it ends up serving as this catalyst for major events uh, that are going to shake the world um and it it's interesting how that how that ends up playing out uh and it's also it's also good to you call Alexei walking wound, and it's it's very true. What I, what I like about Alexei is yet another character that has this real danger of turning into a complete stereotype, right? The oh, here's the here's the mm-hmm. long haired, yeah. you know, black hair, black faced a- anarchist, you know, the wild beard and the and the greasy hair, uh, with his bombs to throw and everything, um, and, and yet part of it is just these performances that that sell it. Like th- this is a period where people 
believe things in a way that maybe they don't now. Like you, you ever hear the um, the conductors in the mm-hmm. compartments? They end up having these passionate arguments about you know whether the socialists will fight. The old conductor uh, is talking to his nephew who he got the job. His nephew wants to go fight the Germans, uh, you know, get revenge for uh, the the Franco-Prussian War. And the older conductor is this mm-hmm. sort of devoted socialist and who actually believes in this international brotherhood of workers. And he's like, we're we're insane yeah, yeah, to fight was... each other. Why would we do that? Yeah, this is that's kind of what I was getting at earlier a bit with the archetype thing. I mean, this is a world in which people can say things like we're this kind of person, you know, where a family would say to one another, we are these kinds of people. And that sort of means something because it is. And the game, you know, definitely is about ideas in a way that it, you know, wears that on its sleeve um, (laughs) very uh, overtly. Um, And also, you know, Rob, you're talking about the way this game allows you to sort of feel history. Um, that's really true in my case with this game in particular. Um, this is not like the most f- flattering thing about myself, but I mean, if I'm speaking honestly, just given the age I was when I played this game for the first time, this game represented a not insignificant um, kind of proportion of my introduction to this era in any context. Um, definitely relative to World War II, this is not World War One is not a significant focus in the curriculum, at least if you just grow up in the United States public education system, at least it wasn't for me. Um, it is, it is just not even remotely as, as, uh, discussed and, and certainly the era, uh, immediately preceding world war one also is not. And so when I first played this game, I had very little grounding in the era at all. And I, the, the way that they sort of present, um, so many of these ideologies and conflicts through these fairly archetypal characters um, was very powerful to me at the time and definitely made me feel some connection to a setting that I had almost no real knowledge of at all. And that's something very powerful. I think that the the, the particular ways in which this game does that are are pretty particular to, to video games and they, the, the, um, the way this game finds a a midpoint between action and observation, I think is, is makes that particularly effective because you're obviously an incredibly important actor in this world, but you do spend a lot of time, even if it's just your trial and error time, um, listening and observing and, and, um, kind of just processing what you're seeing. Uh, and that I, I that was just so effective in in my case, especially at the, the age when I first played well, this. And I had the same I had the same reaction because I knew I liked history and everything, but World War One is not a part of the history that I was very familiar with. It's not it's not a sexy yeah, part yep. of history, right? Like, and you mm-hmm, have to remember, like, go back to the nineties. It feels it feels archaic inherently, right? And it, it beca- and the reason for that is because it 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 really is this sort of last gasp of this old world but i mean it like it especially if you're younger like it is not an attractive time everything feels stodgy and arcane you know well it is but at the same time this movie this movie this game does a really great job of maybe also getting at what was seductive about the Absolutely. colonial era and, imp- and, like, and impassioned and yeah yeah you you are you are on this train that is like oh this is what it was like 
when you had the sense of this this brotherhood of Europeans, this this mm-hmm, totally. this international yes, elite sure. who were all of a certain type, and then there was the rest of the world, and they had their they are right with their own internal divisions. But aboard mm-hmm. this train, there is the sense of like wealth. Yeah, power. even the conflict is kind of genteel. At least the conflict that is represented among these classes. Yeah, and that that ends up being. It, it makes you under. It made me understand, like, kind of what actually did change uh, from World War One, because I think mm-hmm. the history that I was known at, you know, you go back far enough in my imagination of it's just like powdered wigs and waistcoats and that kind of thing. <laughs> sure. Uh, and then there was World War Two, which is like modern history. But this this whole this this whole pre World War One era was kind of this like lost period for me. I didn't really understand Definitely. what it yep, was like, sure. what what that world would have been like. Post Civil War, right? Like it's it's you know it's the touchstones in American history. It kind of falls outside of the 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 real big ones. Well, and this is this is actually what was so revelatory for me. Is that you remember this comes out in the nineties when the United States is in the middle of World War II nostalgia fever. And That's true. there is this sense that history almost worked out for the best, right? Because like the good guys won, America won. I wouldn't say almost. I would say that's an incredibly palpable sensation. I mean Right. I would say people still that's still the 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 kind of received I, I think it's been dinged a little bit by more recent events. Like there was a real naivete at work, I think, in, in the '90s uh, sure, about a lot of things, sure. and something that that happens. Uh, there's, there's a few things that happen toward the end. Um, you know, for for a lot of it, there, there there are questions as to why why Kath even cares. Why why is he getting involved in this? And he never really comes up with a convincing answer. The only answer he can give in the end is that his friend asked him to come help, and he failed, and he's got to stay. Uh, but then he turns the question around on Anna Wolf, uh, who he's increasingly having feelings for, and he's asking, you know, why do you care about why do you care about Austria? You're you're Hungarian. You you're, you're Jewish. The, these aren't your people. You owe them no loyalty, and yet she yeah. has this sort of this this sort of sense of honor and at the end of the game they've fallen in love she's saying that you know maybe maybe they'll stay together a little while longer she won't go right back to back to austria a happy ending is just within reach then that batshit insane ending unfolds and the firebird like gouges out chronos's yeah. eyes soars <laughs> yep. off over the crowd in constantinople and that is when the news arrives that it's going to be war that europe is at war and anna looks at calf and she says i have to go i've i've got to go and then she says this war can't last longer than a month i'll i'll the moment it's over i'll grab the first orient express out and meet you back here in constantinople and it fades out she leaves him with her dog she le- she leaves him there in this crowd <laughs> standing on uh, standing on the train platform camera pulls out until they're both lost in the crowd and then the end titles come up that the war lasted to 1918. The Orient Express didn't run to, again uh, until 1934, and it's this devastating like that everything is lost. These characters are never going to see each other. The, the world yeah. is over, um, and then it cuts to 
the credits begin to roll over flag of Europe in 194, over map of Europe in 1914, and it begins cycling forward. And it's the 90s, and you remember this is like the Balkan Wars were in full swing, and you just watch the borders on the map begin to change as the years cycle and the credits roll. And you see the empires broken up, all these new nations appear, you see World War II unfold, and the national boundaries change again, uh, and it just keeps cycling through this relentless march of time uh, with this really brilliant musical score uh, behind it. And it is just this really crushing ending to this game. And me encountering it in my teens, sort of high on this, you know, sort of uh, Stephen Ambrose, American uh, heroes, <laughs> save the world again and again, uh, idea of history. This was kind of revolutionary to me in that this was a game that made clear that history was a tragedy, that there was tragic elements. There were things that were broken that were never fixed. There are, there are things set in motion in this period that, we still deal with today and this game makes all of that makes all of that real and it does it with this combination of 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 theater over the course of this game but then this just gut punch of an ending where everything is kind of taken from you everything that you you you've done over the course of this game all of it's you know kind of lost in the end and you just watch the world go to hell in the credits and that was for me, kind of, and I, I still think for a game, even today, how many games actually are willing to end on a downer note like that? Um, but for me at the time, it was well, just kind of well, stunning. Well, a lot of games, except that comes with the promise of two more to make the trilogy and then probably a reboot and this and that, right? I mean, there's something really powerful about... Um, who, I mean, I think actually they intended to make sequels to this game starring Robert Kath and... Although I'm not glad that this game was was a commercial failure um, for, for reasons that were kind of beyond their control that had a lot to do with the publisher, unfortunately. But I'm not glad about that. But I am kind of glad that it didn't become a franchise because I think that would have devalued the the tenor. Like that would have devalued what your the sensation you are describing um, having sitting through that ending and seeing the way that this story ends, which is to say it doesn't, it just bleeds into our modern world. But, another, you know, another adventure of uh, sort of American rogue Robert Kath, I don't know if that would have... And then there's the risk of him turning to a Nathan Drake type character. Uh, and, yeah, and exactly. As brilliant right? as, the, mm. as uh, the Last Express is, it is difficult, like... Yeah, if it was just another adventure, it, no matter how well you did it, well, here we're going to set it in, we're going to set it in Weimar Germany, and it's going to bring right. that to life. And and you know what, that could have been an incredible series. And I am a little bit sorry we we didn't get the chance to see the sure. attempt. Yeah, but yeah, I do think that you there's no way you can handle that without lessening just the. Mm -hmm. devastating impact of of that ending and and troy you mentioned earlier you know to sort of start wrapping things up here um you mentioned this whole game that has the sense of time is slipping past if you're in one place you can't be in the other you won't hear this conversation you have to hear this one things will be lost and you won't get a chance and i kind of i i kind of love that this entire game has this has this impending sense of loss of change of 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 opportunities opening briefly and then being closed and gone and it what's funny to me is even after all maybe only in the last few times i've played the game but for years later i always kind of wondered is there an ending i didn't get is there a different <laughs> way and it's this is this weird irrational like there are things i did in this game i once stayed up the entire night camping um uh the russian noble's room to see if there's a way you could stop alexei from going in there uh 
I once yeah. tried to like see if you catch Alexei planting the bomb and maybe just derail that entire thing. Uh, but for 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 ages and ages, I, I sort of had this sneaking suspicion there had to have been a way out. And I discovered a lot of things that aren't immediately apparent in the game. I saw a lot of things. You can go raiding people's rooms and discover a lot about the backstory. But yeah, you you can't change the major story beats. But somehow the game always feels it has this sense. I think like a lot of good tragedies, you have this sense that just things could have worked out a little differently and things would have been so much better, but they never will. Yeah. I'm really glad there weren't any sequels because if this had turned into young Indiana Jones, I'd have been very disappointed. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Nothing against young Indiana Jones, but this would not have made great games. Young Indiana Jones, though, still would have been better than the new movie. Yes. Was better than <laughs> the new movie, but that's Absolutely. not a high bar. But yeah, so... You know, to to wrap this up, um, Trump, I, I'm kind of curious. Like, for for me, this game is is sort of one of those works. Like, for me, in, in my pantheon of Outbreak of World War One literature, um, for me, there's <laughs> Dreadnought, there's Guns of August, and there's this game. Those are the the three things that, for me, sort of. There's a lot of other good books about it, but these yeah. are the things that make that world feel real. It, it's what gives me the sense of of what that what that period and what that war was all about. And so, it, for me, it occupies the special place. I'm curious for you, like, how good a job do you think it does uh, of sort of encapsulating this period and, and the 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 start of this war? I mean, Last Express is great for a million reasons. I mean, the the mechanics of it. I mean, let's. That's, we talk about mechanics and systems in this show, and this is really got you know amazing art and wonderful mechanics, and it sucks you in and sucks you out, and it does a wonder, a great job of just telling the story in interesting and new and original ways. So when this came out in the '90s, this was just a complete and total revelation compared to other adventure games that I'd played, which were you know generally the Lucas Arts and uh, Sierra mm-hmm. one. So this is just completely mind blowing. Um, and I would have liked to have seen more games. Kind, I like to see adventure games that kind of play with the idea of adventure games and puzzle solving. Uh, this doesn't have a lot of really good. This doesn't have a lot of puzzles. It's a few puzzles here and there, but it's mostly about you know getting in, being in the right place at the right time, putting the right, doing the right action at the right time. It's not really puzzles as much as things you do. But as far as capturing the period, I mean, Mechner um, in interviews talked about how important it was to get the art right because as you said rob the sepia photos have a certain look so the art has to have this certain unique look to capture that to capture that distance to capture that bit of a pause this is the i mean the art nouveau style um the everything about um the style of the game fits the period so well and but the themes i mean I'm, we may have overdone it a bit you know trying to make all these connections to historical analogies got a bit too jungian with our discussions of archetypes what the firebird globe actually means but i'm sure yeah. there's actually but we can make those connections because the setting is so pure it's so upfront it's so honest and so true um that's I'm not sure I'd put it up the suit. I don't, I don't. I don't have a pantheon of games about the outbreak of World War One because there really aren't any except for this one. And it's not even about yeah. the outbreak of World War One. And it's not even really about Fendi Europe. It's about 
people living in this world and mm -hmm, the definitely. crises they have to deal with personally, plus the global crisis going on around them. Um, I really do love this game, and I recommend people at least watch you know, some of these nine-part walkthroughs on YouTube and just see uh, some of the amazing, amazing things going on in this game. Chris? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I agree with basically everything uh, Troy just said. I think that the, you know, your point about it being not about that event in history, um, but rather being contextualized in that moment in history is, is, is exactly how I feel. I mean, I, I think that's such a wonderful thing to do with history at all, but also a really wonderful thing to do in a game. Um, I, to me, it does something that I really appreciate, you know, even aside from this era, um, which is to create, as I said earlier, to create a world in which it feels like the events don't just exist to give sort of solipsistic meaning to the, to the player, to players involvement in the player character's existence. Like the, I, I, I love that this game puts you in the context of these events that are happening that you fall into and are, are not really the master of. I mean, um, and then on top of that, it's, it's, you know, it's putting this microcosm of the train in the context of, of what's going on on the brink of war in Europe largely. And, you know, obviously, you know, as Troy said, we don't want to overdo the sort of obsession with like tying everything to a grand theme, but you know, there is, there is sort of a nice, there are nice layers of resonance there that start at the, at the, the player sort of finding uh, him or herself in the middle of the situation and then spiraling out to the sort of grand sociopolitical um, event. I, I just, I just think it's really wonderful. It's very, to me, well-conceived right from the very beginning. It's the most fundamental choices they made in terms of setting and tone um, and environment or just really speak to to all of that incredibly well and and the gameplay kind of frustrations abound for sure but um tonally and fictionally i just i love how they situated all that stuff yeah i, I think you know it's it's interesting i think this game uh presages a lot of these those arguments we we've had over the last few years you know what is a game and, and sure. that kind of that kind of silliness and i remember when when i finished this game um, after I had some time to reflect on it, I sort of had that moment of, well, what did I actually do in that game? Like, what did I actually play? Because <laughs> compared to everything else, like, even by the standard of adventure games, this is a really mm -hmm. non-interactive game in the classic sense. Like, you don't go clicking on shit. You don't go gathering stuff and mashing it together to see what happens. Um, I mean, you kind of do. It's just a lot more... Uh the possibility space is, is a little smaller. Yeah, but I think predominantly what you do is you sit and listen in this game. Yeah, well, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, and <laughs> I do too. And it was like one of those things where I just sort of like had that moment of like, "Huh, that is was that was that a was that a real game? Was that was that really a game?" And that, <laughs> who, who who cared? It was it was something that could only have existed in this form. Um, well, yeah, and and there are you know at this point there have you know it's actually a real I think something really unfortunate if you um, search for materials written about this game that are contemporary to the game so actual reviews um, like this this game came from a very fascinating era of games as public artifacts which is that computer games not console games so much but computer games 
of this era were regularly regularly reviewed by mainstream publications, um, newspapers, and uh, and mainstream websites without any um, particular question about it. There was actually, I mean, this was actually quite a common thing hmm. at the time with games that, I mean, not so much with like Hexen or, or you know, whatever was happening in the sort of gory yeah. um, first person shooter space at the, at the gear this game came out. But games like um, many adventure games and sort of games with a, a slower paced uh, feel like this game and Myst certainly, there, there was a whole category of games that were regularly reviewed in um, very uh, um, uh, kind of traditional publications and there wasn't one thing you would never see in any of those reviews is, is this a game? And I, I think it's, you know, in a way it's kind of unfortunate that what, uh, 17 years after this game came out, um, we're, we're now in this era where that, that idea has to be constantly fought over again and again and again. Um, but I don't. I don't entirely know why. I don't. I don't know why that battle keeps um, being reinstigated. Um, because if because this this is a game that if it came out now would be absolutely subject to. I suspect to. Oh, is it just interactive fiction? Is it blah 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 blah? Um, but at the time, it, it sort of that was never. It didn't seem to be an issue at all. Well, um, people had gameplay uh, con- um, criticisms, uh, certainly in the vein of things we've discussed with the sort of trial and error bits and frustrations. But I don't think there were any sort of existential um, qualms about it. Well, it, it, it's funny because this is coming in the it, you know this is peak FMV era, and yet it's not an FMV game, right? Because the rotoscoping right. yeah, kind that's, of that's, blows that's that up. True. Yeah. It's it's interesting because in subsequent years. There's there's such devotion form to part of legitimizing games was to play to the unique strengths of the medium, and perish mm-hmm. the thought that we borrow all these 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 things from film, uh, and this this game explicitly sort of wears its its theater and film and and it wears all that on its sleeve, um, and yet games were kind of allowed to do that at the, at this time. It was kind of like you know the, that was one of the things that I think gets underrated. It's very easy to sort of make fun of the FMV era in a lot of ways, but a lot. A lot of the games were also trying to do kind of interesting things, just sort of narratively and sort of the the mix of the, the mix of story and gameplay. Um, in, in and it sort of seems like after this era kind of ended, a lot of those experiments kind of vanished as as well. Because I mean, let's face it, like sure. low poly models, like were were not great. They they couldn't carry a scene like. Just look. Just go back and look at Sin, uh, for instance, and just see what I, oh, yeah, just yeah. see what happens when when you try to do that with shooter characters. But I, I do think it's 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 an interesting era in that people were were kind of encouraged and excited to see games sort of breaking into this territory where you could sort of just sit around and watch these people interact and be the fly on the wall, and that was good enough. And the, the weird thing is, I think that game would be celebrated by. Some people today, if it, if it came out now, and then probably subject to that that debate you described. But it is interesting that uh, you know I think this is part of what made the '90s great. So few things were really codified that there's a Absolutely. lot more yeah. just yep. throwing shit at the wall and see what sticks. For sure, so many so many genres that we now take for granted were uh, iterated into existence in the '90s, um, but had not yet accrued that sense of like inevitability or uh or rigidity that they that they have now 
Uh, I mean, that, that there there were examples of that as well, uh, certainly. Um, I remember the RTS genre very quickly settled into uh, a pretty um, staid kind of formula. But um, but uh, to, uh, one of the unfortunate things about uh, so. Rob, you're saying, you know, people uh, following this, people got um, very interested in the notion of, oh, what can games do uniquely? And let's double down on those things. Like, there are really great things about that. And in fact, I think some of those things are present in The Last Express with, you know, respect to splitting the difference between being an observer and being an, being a, a crucial actor. I think that's that's a really powerful thing that you you, you can see in other media depicted, but um, it, it can be experienced in a way in games that is very palpable. Um but in a lot of the subsequent years, I think that focus on what can games do uniquely um, had a, a side effect of um, maybe in some cases implicitly endorsing the notion that the things that games do not do the best can simply be disregarded. Like, um, I don't think anyone would claim that as a as a manifesto, but I think that was a result in a lot of cases. You know, I think sometimes the most, sometimes one of the more interesting things a game can do is actually to just do anything really well, um, regardless of what the of what the uh, sort of gameplay context is. Because I think at this point, the I think the the writing's on the wall in terms of what's a game, right? Like people still fight about that constantly, but I think really. I think we know at this point that history will look back on those arguments as being kind of frivolous and and pointless. And I think the notion of what is a game will simply will be answered in a very intuitive way that doesn't need any kind of sort of um, lodology uh, based justification or something. You know, I mean, I and so I I wish that. Like it, it feels like there were there was a period of sort of a like a lost era of narrative in games from the sort of late '90s to the the mid 2000s almost, where a lot of the things that, for example, this game, The Last Express, handles so beautifully and um, uh, and was such a focus on the part of its developers, really got deprioritized in games as a whole. Uh, and I, f- I feel like that's actually only recently started to be overcome at all. Um, I don't know. It feels like it felt like a damaging um, subcurrent of, of game development priorities to me for a while. That was a very long rambling no, it's, bit that was of great. nonsense. I'm sorry. No, that's great. great. This is this is why this is already one of my favorite episodes ever. Um we we we've not only had a eulogy for the lost world of uh, pre World War One Europe, but the lost as I wrapped up the lost world of nineties video games. Uh, yeah, there, there was more that there was more than one world ending uh, over yeah. the course of In the, the last, last Express. Express. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we'll leave it there for tonight. Uh, Chris and Troy, thanks so much for being so generous with your time this evening and for the fantastic discussion. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Glad to be here. All right, and uh, until the next week, uh, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night, everybody. Good night.